Will you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2? I'm going to conclude what I began last week, speaking on the topic of the birth of the Messiah King. We will be examining the latter part of the first seven verses of Luke 2, but let me read them to you. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all who were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. When the angel appeared to the terrified shepherds, announcing the birth of our Lord, you will recall that he began by saying, fear not. And that was for good reason, because they were very afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Dear friends, we never want to underestimate the glad tidings of great joy. That is the gospel. To think that because of Christ, we will one day stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. We will not stand before him as our judge, guilty with great dread. The Lord of glory will not treat us as a sentencing judge, but he will treat us as a loving father. Moreover, as the angel Gabriel told Mary, he will be our king. And scripture tells us that he will sit upon the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Dear friends, I pray that you will never lose the wonder of all of this. And this morning I wish to direct your attention once again to our glorious Messiah, the King. Consistent with Old Testament prophecy. And I fear that this is often overlooked in the Christmas story, to think of him as our Messiah King and all that that entails. Let me begin by reminding you of a passage in Jeremiah, chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, where the prophet announced the final king in the line of David. He said, Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. What an amazing passage of scripture especially in the age in which we live where we see political leaders all around the world filled with greed and corruption and immorality. Imagine what it will be like during the millennium when the Lord, our righteousness, reigns upon the earth. Let's ponder this together for a moment by focusing on what the word of the Lord has to say just through his prophet Jeremiah and let this help frame our examination of those final few verses in Luke 2, 1 through 7. You will recall, perhaps, that after focusing on the judgment of Judah, 
and the hopeless conditions of the Babylonian siege, Jeremiah predicted eventual salvation and restoration of all Israel according to the new covenant promises that are delineated, especially in Jeremiah chapter 30 through 33. A promise that seems unlikely given Israel's unbelief today. Today we know that Israel is experiencing a temporary and a, a partial hardening as God saves many Gentiles. This is consistent with Romans eleven twenty five. Only a remnant of believing Israelites exist today around the world, but they exist as a clear reminder that the nation as a whole will be saved. And we read about this, especially in Romans chapter 11, verses 16 and 26. During a coming day of the Lord, a coming day of judgment, we know according to Scripture that Israel's unbelief will be reversed and God will save and he will restore Israel when Jesus the Messiah returns. You can read Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 for more on that particular event. At that time, the earthly phase of the kingdom will be established and Israel will enter the blessings of the kingdom and lead the nations of the world in worshiping the Messiah. In fact, Jeremiah, chapter 30, begins with the promise of the restoration for Israel. Verse 3, he says, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. He goes on then to describe the conditions of the kingdom. In verse 10, we read of the offspring of Israel is going to return from their captivity. Nations that oppressed Israel will be punished. Israel's health will be restored and their wounds will be cured. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The palace will stand on its rightful place. Israel will be the people of God. In chapter 31, the promises of the new covenant continue. He speaks of a unified Israel that will be the people of God. Israel will be rebuilt. The nation will be filled with joy. Israel will be regathered from the remote parts of the earth. Agriculture and livestock will prosper. The young and old in Israel will be joyful. Sorrow over heartbreaking oppression will cease. And all of these things are just a summary of what the prophet has to say. Then in chapters 32 and 33, he gives even more details regarding both the physical and the spiritual blessings of the kingdom, all because God is faithful to his covenant promises that he originally made to Abraham. In fact, in Jeremiah 33, all God's promises to restore the nation Israel and place the Messiah King upon his rightful throne, all of those promises are linked to the five unconditional covenants of Old Testament Scripture. For example, it's linked, as we could see if we studied it, to the covenant that God made with Noah in Genesis chapter 8, where God promised the stability of nature as part of his plan for carrying out his kingdom promises. The covenant that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham would be the father of a great nation, Israel, who will be the divine conduit for bringing blessings to all the nations. And then there's the priestly covenant in Numbers 25, that there will be a perpetual priesthood. And certainly the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promise of an ultimate king that would be the descendant of David, the righteous branch of David, he says, who will execute justice and righteousness on the earth, according to Jeremiah 33 and verse 15 the one who will rule and bless the entire world from Israel. And then you have the remainder of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, the promise of how God will change the hearts of his people and he will grant his Holy Spirit so that they will always obey him. A time when, as I read earlier in Jeremiah 30 or 23, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land, and so forth. 
Beloved, we should all be encouraged by these prophecies because as we look at them, we see that even in the midst of catastrophic judgment, imagine what it would be like to have this Babylonian horde destroying your home place, killing your friends, your family. Imagine the horror of that. But in the midst of that, to hear God speaking through his prophet, a message of hope, life-sustaining hope. We must remember that, that even in the midst of days of profound sorrow, there is always hope, all because of Christ, our Savior and our King. And as Gentiles now, we have been grafted into the rich root of Abrahamic blessing. And today the church is the temporary custodian of gospel truth until Jesus returns. And Israel will then finally rise up and fulfill its original role as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19 and verse 6. And so what we see today is God saving and preparing in the church the members of the royal family that is destined to reign with Christ in a future established kingdom, as we read in 2 Timothy 2.12. In fact, there is a great parallel in the career of King David with that of Christ. You will remember when David was chosen of God, and anointed as king of Israel, he did not immediately occupy the throne. There was a period of time when he was despised, when he was rejected, a fugitive in the wilderness. You will recall that he was pursued by King Saul, whose regal rights had already been abrogated, yet he maintained the throne as a usurper. And during that time, men were, who were debtors, and who were in distress, gathered themselves, Scripture tells us. They gathered themselves unto David as his loyal followers. And eventually, when Saul was defeated, the kingdom of David was established over Israel, and he was anointed king. Similarly, Jesus, the greater son of David, was first exalted as Lord and the Messiah King at his first coming, as you will recall, but not until his second coming when he establishes his kingdom on earth as the rightful successor to the throne of his father David will we see the fulfillment of all of the kingdom promises. And in the interim, what is he doing? He is gathering unto himself a people for himself. Men and women who are debtors and in distress because of sin. He is gathering unto himself a royal family who are destined to reign with him. And yet, even now, from his throne in heaven, the king is bestowing upon, his, upon us his, his regal blessings as we experience certain elements of the kingdom even before it arrives. Now, back to God's covenant promises and his faithfulness to his promises. As you will recall last week, we saw some of them fulfilled in stunning detail as we think about the Christmas story. And this brings us back again to Luke chapter 2. You will remember last week, we looked at the historical narrative and just by way of quick review, we were reminded first of all of Bethlehem's destiny. There we examined the significance of the city of Bethlehem, the ancient royal city where King David was born, and it would be therefore most fitting for the greater son of David, the divine king of Israel, to be born in that same little village consistent with Micah's prophecy that we studied, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, where we read, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. So Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was yet another piece of the puzzle of God's unconditional covenant that he made with David in 2 Samuel 7. A thousand years before Jesus' birth, promising David that God would raise up for him a descendant, the Messiah King who would establish David's kingdom forever. 
a dynasty that would one day dominate the world when the king of kings returns in all of his glory to judge the nations and establish his messianic reign upon the earth. So what's fascinating as we come to the Christmas story, we see that through a divinely orchestrated and and complex saga of political machinations, God moved upon the heart of Caesar Augustus, and I'm sure he had no idea this was happening. He moved upon his heart to take a census in Palestine. And Joseph and Mary traveled some 85 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem to register. And there, the official stamp of the Roman Empire would verify that Jesus Christ was indeed the son of David, the rightful heir of David, fulfilling God's covenant promises that he made all the way back in 2 Samuel that required that the Messiah descend from the loins of David. And dear friends, (laughs) it's amazing to me to think that in Bethlehem, Micah's prophecy was fulfilled, literally, as will be all of the rest of his predictions and all of the prophecies. Because, dear friends, upon the fulfillments of the jots and the tittles of the Word of God rests the veracity of God's character and His Word. And so all that God says is going to come to pass. And to be sure, Joseph and Mary knew about this prophecy of Micah. You will remember that Mary, who was probably about 13 years old, was a young lady that was very well versed in Bible theology. Her, her heart was saturated with the Word of God, something that you rarely see in young people today. In fact, Luke 1 records her prayer. I read it to you earlier, her prayer of praise to God. She understood that her child was indeed the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. So having examined Bethlehem's destiny, let's notice now matters pertaining to Bethlehem's child, beginning in verse 6. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. So who is this firstborn son of Mary? Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, the angel announced that he was, quote, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, what does Christ mean? What does the term Lord mean? And more importantly, what do these terms mean to you? Well, first of all, the term Christ is used some 500 times in the New Testament. It translates the Hebrew word Messiah. The question is, is is he your Messiah? Also, the word Lord, kurios, in the original Greek, is a title. And that title literally means ruler or, or master, one who commands, one who exercises supernatural authority. So what does this say about Jesus? And what difference should this make in our life? Now, let's remember the context And I read about this in our scripture reading. Mary and Joseph, as well as Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, and then the shepherds, all of them knew that the infant child was the Messiah. We know that according to John 1 in verse 41, when Andrew found his brother Simon Peter, he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. We also know that the Samaritans also believed that Jesus was the Messiah. In John 4, Jesus met a Samaritan woman. You will remember that. And and, and he exposed her, her bondage to sexual sin. And in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And later in verse 25, she said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And Jesus went on to preach to the Samaritans in verses 41 and following. 
We read that many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Dear friends, baby Jesus in the manger was the Messiah sent from God. Now, what did this mean to the Jewish mind? And therefore, what should it mean to us? Well, what about the word Messiah? It comes actually from a Hebrew verb that means to spread a liquid over. And it came to mean symbolically to anoint someone with oil. And so Messiah literally means the anointed one. And Christos, Christ, in, in uh, Christos being the Greek, Christ in the English, that's what it's referring to, the Messiah, the anointed one. And it's fascinating. If we go back in the Old Testament, we see that there were three offices in the theocratic kingdom of God that he designed for his covenant people. And each one of those people in those three offices were anointed with oil. In other words, they were consecrated. They were set apart by God for their respective offices. And they were all mediators between God and men. They were all messiahs, small m, all right? Messiahs, small m. And those three offices were prophets, priests, and kings. The prophets spoke God's truth to man. The priests brought man's burdens and sins to God and interceded between God and man, provided sacrifices, and then kings were the ones that ruled for God. They were the mediatorial rulers in the theocratic kingdom. Because of our sin, God knew that we would need all three of those offices. And where I'm going with this is we're going to see that the Lord Jesus Christ was the embodiment of all three. The Lord knew that we need a prophet to reveal to us the truth of God. He knew also that we need a priest to sympathize with our weaknesses, to be a mediator between us and a holy God, and to intercede on our behalf. He also knew that we need a king to rule over us according to God's holy standard of righteousness and justice, a king that would be able to subdue the enemy of our soul. And all of this is pictured in the Old Testament Messiah's small m those that were anointed to function in those three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Now, what's also interesting to note, that there were three things that were always true about God's messiahs. Number one, they were always chosen by God. No prophet, priest, or king was ever chosen by the people. None were self-appointed. No one volunteered for the job. Secondly, they were always given divine authority to speak for God and to act on his behalf. And then thirdly, they were always empowered by God to do his bidding. Beloved, each of these three offices, prophet, priest, and king, are merged together in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the perfect embodiment of all three. We know, according to Scripture, that he was chosen and sent by the Father. You will recall, quoting from Isaiah 42.1, Jesus spoke of the Father choosing him when he said in Matthew 12.18, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. And in John chapter 6 and verse 38, we read, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Jesus said in John eight fifty four, it is my father who glorifies me. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Quoting Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. So Jesus was chosen. By God. He is the priest king. He was also given divine authority. 
Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Authority over men, authority over Satan, authority over nations, over demons, over nature, over disease, over death. In John 5 and verse 22, he says, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. And in verse 27, we read, he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And also like the Old Testament messiahs, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. We read of this in Matthew 12 and verse 18, again quoting from Isaiah 42.1, I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And in John 1 verse 32, John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. Beloved, all through scripture we see the supremacy of Christ. We see how God chose him and gave him all authority and power in all three offices. You might recall in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, the father, quote, raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Beloved, this is the Messiah, the infant in the manger, Mary's child. The Apostle Paul tells us, beginning in Colossians 1, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So indeed, he was empowered by the Spirit. All authority was given to him. And it's for this reason, Paul will say in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, God is highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear Christian, don't miss this. Please don't miss this. He alone is the quintessential, all righteous and eternal God. The perfect embodiment of a prophet the one who God chose to speak to the truth to the people. You will recall in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. According to John 1.14, he is the very, quote, word of God that became flesh dwelt among us that we might behold his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not only is he the quintessential prophet, but also the quintessential all-righteous and eternal priest who actually bore our sins in his body as our substitute, the final sacrifice for sin. The one who now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. And it's for this reason that Paul would say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. 
We read that he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he was suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Moreover, we read in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 22, that Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. He goes on to say that unlike the former priests who were mortal and died, he says, he abides forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And then finally in Hebrews 9 and verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, referring to heaven, the dwelling place of God. Beloved, this is the Messiah of Scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ is the flawless embodiment of the priestly office. And finally, he is also the quintessential, all-righteous and eternal King of kings and Lord of lords. And because of these great truths pertaining to the three offices of the Old Testament theocracy, unlike all of the messiahs of Old Testament, the, the small M, all of the Old Testament messiahs before him, We have to remember that only the child that was conceived by the Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary can have the titles Lord and Savior and Messiah with a capital M. That's who he is. And it's fascinating that we can see three different colors of thread, shall we say, woven into the gospel of accounts regarding Christ, a thread, a different color, might you say, that represent these three messianic offices. You will recall, for example, the Messiah's coming was announced by the angel Gabriel to Zacharias. And what office did he hold? He was a priest. He told him that the ultimate and final priest of priests was coming. And secondly, the angelic messenger told him that his barren wife would conceive and bear a son. His son would be named John, and John would be the final of the Old Testament prophets, a divinely chosen and empowered authoritative spokesman of God for the coming Christ, the herald of the coming king, the one who would tell people the truth of how to enter the kingdom. And then finally, and almost comically, through the Persian kingmakers who came to worship Christ, the Christ child, God spoke to Herod, who was a man-appointed king of Israel, and really no king at all. And through them, those kingmakers warned him and all of Jerusalem that the true king has arrived. And it was for this reason in Matthew 2, beginning in verse 3, Herod the king The text says, was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And of course, they told him, Matthew 5, 2, or Micah 5, 2, in Bethlehem. I want to conclude by focusing finally on Bethlehem's manger We've seen Bethlehem's destiny and Bethlehem's child, Mary's firstborn. And now let's focus on this concept of a manger. Fascinating to me. Notice in verse 7, And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was not room for them in the inn. The cloths that they would wrap the child in would be cloths that would 
that, 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 that would provide security for the child. It, it would make them feel secure, make them feel protected. We see lots of mothers today with those little things that you hang in front of you. You wrap the child and you tie them up, and they're all snuggled up in there. They also believe that it helped their bones grow straight. I'm not sure how true that is, but, but we see here that she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, bear in mind that the inns that they had in those days were not at all like what you think of today. At best, they would be crude public shelters for travelers, and most of the time they would be caves. And there is reason to believe that by tradition that that's where Jesus was born, in kind of a cave-like shelter. And these, these shelters would also have a corral for the animals. You have to have a place to park your car when you go to a motel, don't you? And that's what you would have to have then, a place to park your, your, your horse or, in most cases, your, your little donkey. And the corral for the animals were, were separated and there would always be a loft that they would someplace high to put the hay to keep the animals out of it. And then there would be a manger where you would feed the animals because it's poor for the respiratory health of, uh, of an animal to eat hay off of the ground. They can, um, they can pick up all of the, 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 uh, the dust rather than letting the dust fall as they eat from a manger. Moreover, they can pick up sand and dirt when they eat on the ground, and that can cause a distended bowel. They can get sand in their bowels, and then when a horse lays over, that can flip around, and all of a sudden, it will cut the bowel off, and the horse cannot defecate, and it will die. So mangers were very important. And so we know that because of the senses, all of these people are there. There's really no place to stay in these public shelters. So Mary and Joseph stayed with the animals. Now, why a manger? Why would the Messiah, the Son of God, enter this world in such profound, utter obscurity and, frankly, filth? Well, first of all, let me tell you that I cannot take you to a passage of Scripture and say, thus saith the Lord. But I think I can share with you a tenable hypothesis with respect to why a manger, at least some of the symbols that I believe are there that I think have merit. And I wish to offer you three reasons this morning. The first reason why Jesus was born and placed then in a manger. First reason is to picture the Messiah's rejection. What a perfect place to begin his days of humiliation as prophet, priest, and king. Remember, as prophet, he came as the living word of God to save sinners, to tell sinful man how they can be made righteous. And for this reason, according to Philippians 2, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To think that he, according to John 1, beginning in verse 9, was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. All of this is pictured in this scene. And how could Christ be our faithful high priest? Were he not able to sympathize with our weaknesses and our infirmities? How could he do that unless he could himself experience a life of poverty, a life of pain, a life of rejection and persecution? And it's for this reason the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Your friends, think about it. Had the Messiah come in the splendor of his regal glory, as he will in his second coming, Man would have worshipped him all over the world, but for all the wrong reasons. 
All of the wrong reasons. We saw a glimpse of this later, didn't we? Remember his mock coronation when he came into Jerusalem? His triumphal entry, as it's often referred to. He comes riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. They thought, oh great, the Messiah is here. He's going to defeat Rome. We're all going to be exalted. Free food, no work, right? I mean, this is liberal utopia. They said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in essence, what they're saying is he has come to exalt me. To heal my diseases, eliminate my poverty, make me rich, etc., etc. But knowing how man is prone to be enam- being enamored with the sensational and the grandiose and the spectacular. The king of glory is born in a lowly stable, not in a palace. And the manger is a picture even of the, the poverty of spirit that is necessary to enter into the kingdom of God as well as a depiction of the world's rejection of his terms as king. So the king of kings would be born in a cave, and later he would be put to rest in a tomb. He was placed in a manger, and later on he would be hung upon a cross. It's interesting, he would be twice wrapped in cloths, once at his birth, and again at his death. He would be homeless in birth as well as in death. Indeed, the Lord himself said in Matthew 8, 20, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So much for the heresy of the prosperity gospel. He came the first time being born along in his mother's womb on a donkey attended by two humble teens dressed in peasant's garb. But dear friends, we know according to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 14, that when he comes again, he will be attended by, quote, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in white and fine linen, white and clean. A reference to his glorious church. That's us, folks. The first time he came, he wore swaddling clothes, but when he returns again, according to Revelation 19 and verse 16, he will be, quote, clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The manger not only depicts the Messiah's rejection, but I believe it also depicts his humanity. Remember, Sinful man could never atone for his own sin, so God had to do something. God's holy justice could not be satisfied apart from an infinitely holy ransom. And only by his provision of his own son could such a remedy be accomplished. Thus, the virgin birth. The work of redemption demanded a theanthropon, a God-man, one who could supernaturally fuse the the human nature with the divine nature into an indissoluble bond. So Jesus had to take upon himself the nature of a man in order to be punished for our sin as our substitute, but he also had the nature of God in order to live a sinless life and to be a holy ransom that would satisfy God's justice. Moreover, he would also have to be God in order to endure the sins of all whom the Father had given him. So both the human and divine natures had to be supernaturally woven together. Jesus had to be conceived by God and born of a virgin in order for him to be both the Son of Man and the Son of God. A son of a virgin according to the, to the flesh and God with us according to the Spirit. And as I think about it, what, a, what better way for God to establish the humanity of His Son than to have Him born of a virgin 
in a stable and placed into a manger. It reminds me of the passage in Hebrews 2 and verse 9 where it says, we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This doesn't mean that he came just to die, but he came to die for us. As a man, he became our substitute. So not only does the manger picture his rejection and his humanity, but finally, I think it pictures the Messiah's subjects. Will you join me for a moment? Picture in your mind, in your imagination, the scene. Look around that dusty stable. And I want you to tell me what you don't see. You don't see any emperors. You don't see any kings or queens, princes or noblemen. You don't see any generals that lead vast armies. You don't see any celebrities. You don't see any business moguls. You don't see any Pharisees, do you? You don't see any scribes, any of the Sadducees, any of the Sanhedrin. And you don't see any vast crowds clamoring after him, vowing their allegiance to him. You don't see any of that, do you? No. What you see is simply two Galilean rednecks, peasants from Nazareth, poor, uneducated, common people, but whom had been given the gift of faith and therefore were recipients of divine grace like all of us. Folks, these are the subjects of the King of Glory. Soon to be joined by the peasant shepherds, and then later on the Gentile kingmakers come, and then as we see over the course of redemptive history, a great multitude that no man can number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages. Beloved, Jesus is the Savior and Lord of the meek and the lowly, not the proud and the mighty. He is the prophet, he is the priest, he is the king of the broken and the bowed down, not the self-willed and the self-exalted. My mind always goes to 1 Corinthians 1 in this regard. In verse 26, Paul says this, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. Dear friends, may I challenge you in closing this morning. Don't miss these magnificent truths that are utterly eclipsed by all of the materialistic and immoral clutter of Christmas in our modern day. All you have to do is drive down the street and look at the things out in people's yards. And you are not going to see, at least very seldom, will you see anything that resembles the great truths that God has presented to you today in his word. But don't let that be true in your heart. And for those of you who just live for yourself, for those of you who really down deep in your heart, you really don't know Christ, you're just desperate for affirmation, just kind of going through life, be filled with bitterness and discontent and immorality, whatever it is, I pray that today you will bow before the Messiah King 
the greater son of David. Or mark my word on the basis of Scripture, if you don't, you will one day bow before him not as your king, but as your judge and as your executioner. And for every believer, I pray that you will think upon these things during this Christmas season. Meditate upon these things. Rehearse these things. I know some of you say, Pastor, there's just so much in all of this. Yes, there is. I understand that. And I know you're not going to get all of it. That's why there's a thing called the Internet, where you can go and you can listen to these things again. Make them a part of your theology. Make them a part of your life so that you can impart these great truths to your children. And they can impart them to their children so that Christ can be exalted. Otherwise, all Christmas is is Santa Claus, trees, and gifts, and the sappy hallmark concept of the magic of Christmas, falling in love. All of those shows are the same, aren't they? (laughs) Folks, Christmas is about the incarnation of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ the perfect embodiment of prophet, priest, and king, the Messiah king who will one day set upon his throne, the throne of his father David, who will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And I close with this thought. On Friday night, Nancy and I were able to join Joe and Tara at the Skirmerhorn Symphony Center where we heard Handel's great oratorio, The Messiah. One of my favorite pieces of music. And I remember standing, as I do every time, with tear-filled joy when they sang the Hallelujah Chorus. Isn't that just... I mean, if, if there's ever a piece of music that's inspired, it's that. That whole oratorio. Is, well, it's all Scripture. And I remember standing there, hearing them sing again, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings, forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And Lord of lords, forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Dear friend, allow these truths to animate your heart this Christmas season. Animate your soul to praise your Savior and your King and to cause your heart to cry out, Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen? Come quickly. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these magnificent promises that you have given us in your word. I pray that this Christmas season will be a time when we fall before you like never before to worship you as not only our Savior, not only our prophet, our priest, but also our Messiah King, a people who long for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord Jesus, come quickly. We long for that day when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And until that time, we will serve you and look for your appearing. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.